This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in July. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Jimmy Note is a Zuni tribal member, CEO of the Colorado Plateau Foundation, and chair of the Board of Trustees at the Grand Canyon Trust. He's also a scientist, writer, and a traditional farmer. And he's going to join us today to talk about the different ways the Western scientists and Native people understand the world. We'll talk about the Bears Ears National Monument, challenges facing the Colorado Plateau, Native response to rock art, and much more. And uh, Jimmy Note, uh, we had you on uh, a panel discussing Earth Day. And uh, a real pleasure to welcome you back uh, to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so, uh, for those who uh, are, you know, many of our listeners will be familiar with you and your background. Those some who who will not, um, tell us just a little bit more about yourself. You uh, you grew up in Zuni, right? Yes. Well, I, majority of my life, probably eighty five percent of my life is here. But uh, I would describe myself first as a farmer, uh, and in fact, this is my sixty fifth consecutive year planting as a farmer i i first dropped some seeds into a hole when i was still tied to a cradle board and yeah that's what my grandparents told me that uh, as an infant a baby they put some seeds in my hand with my little baby hands and dropped some seeds in a hole and as a toddler helped out in the field maybe i got in the way i don't know but i was i was still there and uh Years later, when I was hitchhiking uh, across the western U.S. after high school, I was sort of a Johnny Appleseed and, and planting planting seeds wherever I went. And uh, when I went off to university, eventually I, I planted some chilies and some cilantro and some onions outside my dorm. After returning back home to Zuni here, went back to the family field and been still planting every year. But, you know, it's been getting drier. and that, That's another story. So I guess I I would say I'm a farmer. I'm not a practitioner of a culture of land use. I'm a gatherer of views and perspectives, and maybe I'm an, an intrepid explorer of the human experience. Yeah, that's a, a nice collection of, of attributes. I want to get into all those as we go along. Um, you, you, you've said, I, I found this on, I, I can't remember the Grand Canyon Trust or the or Colorado Plateau Foundation website, you say the worldview of Native people should be respected and more deeply understood. I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit more about that. Well, you know, I, I have always believed, uh, and again, from my, my experience uh, exploring people and the human experience, that we, we should always be uh, casting a wider net and that to solve some of the world's most complex problems, that we should employ the broadest spectrum of talents, skills, and experiences. And my my experience in, well, maybe living in, in two different worlds. You know, you know, I'm here in on the Zuni Reservation, my hometown, which, by the way, is a beautiful thing to be living in your hometown your entire life, practically, and. You know, it makes me the family loan shark, maybe the bail bondsman, <laughs> the family chauffeur sometimes. But it's a beautiful thing to live within two minutes of every living relative. But 
You know, I, what I, I've learned, though, is that um, growing up, um, I would read about something. Maybe it's the Grand Canyon, or maybe I read about the, the Green River. And and then I hear an uncle talk about those same places, and maybe an aunt or a grandmother tell me what they know about those places. And, and maybe a teacher from school talk about those places. So I've got this collection and this almost like these vignettes of perspectives and ideas coming at me and then i i digest it and i think about those things and and i put it all together and that forms my view and and thoughts and opinions about those places and, and ideas and when oh many years ago i, I was a natural resource manager for the zuni tribe and i remember attending a watershed planning meeting and i think this was uh, in the late 80s or early 90s and there were back then it was called the soil conservation service but there were scs the forest service blm other folks there at the table at this meeting and we were talking about watershed planning and i raised my hand and i said that there are some important experiences of, of the zuni people and other tribal people in this region that we should consider in this planning and i remember uh, one person from one of the agencies saying, you know, whatever. I mean, that was literally still branded in my brain is hearing this word, whatever. And that was then. But I think that uh, people now, not only in, in state, federal, municipalities, also cities, uh, that you just can't ignore that, especially in the West, where so much of tribal, so much of lands generally uh, is controlled by tribes, and that we have been here a very long time. I mean, my my tribe, I, I'm I'm a 600th generation uh, descendant of this region. There's there's some lessons learned, you know, good and bad. And why shouldn't those ideas, those experiences, be included? In, in practically any way we think about the world, whether it's civil society or belief systems or arts, whatever it may be, there's important lessons learned, and those should be included. I mean, if, if they're not, including languages, because the knowledge of 600 generations of living in this place, and I could use the mantra, we are of this place, if, by ignoring those, not giving some time to that and its place, it would be like having a library minus an entire wing. Like right? we're missing shelves and shelves of, of important experience and knowledge. So that's why I think these perspectives and uh, the knowledge of Native people should be appreciated. Uh, definitely want to follow up with that, but uh, it it so struck me. I want to follow up uh, first with your your statement that the this blessing of living in your hometown, living within a few miles of every living relative, um, and dead relatives, and dead relatives. Yes, yeah, yeah equally important. Um, that that's not the experience of the great majority of us. Maybe t- tell me a little bit more about what uh, you know what that experience is like. Well, you know, when when uh, I'm in family gatherings, you know, we have large families, um, and you know, my 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 family are neighbors. My my neighbors are family, and 
And there are times when we have some of our ceremonial gatherings, and, and maybe we're meeting in these kivas. Maybe some of your your listeners know what I'm talking about, kivas, or, or any, any kind of large public gathering or a private gathering. I can look around the room, and I see all these other brown faces, and I think every one of us in this room all of our great, 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 great grandmothers were of this place. And that the blood that was in their veins is in our veins. And that is very something very difficult to convey to people. But it is it is something that I very much enjoy. Uh, I feel it is a blessing, and you know, I, I think I, I still respect certainly others that will say, well, they are third generation or they were tenth generation uh, Americans. I appreciate that because they're they're getting at that sense of what it means to be in the same place for a long time. You know, there's uh, Tom. I remember uh, about twenty years ago, I had some some young. Young people that came out to my field were helping me. I think they were from oh, Berkeley or somewhere. I don't remember exactly where, but they were they were wanting to form a uh, like a commune or that. There, one of them said, "We want to be a tribe." And how can we be a tribe? And, and I told these young people, they were non-native people, um, and they were, they were lovely too, lovely people. And I said, "Well, I think all of you should come together." And make a pledge that for the next 200 years, none of you and your and your descendants will ever leave the same place. And they looked at each other like, well, "That's a stretch." <laughs> and I said, "Well, if you want to form a tribe, that's just the beginning. You got to do that for us at least several thousand years." But there is something unique about being of this place for for 600 generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. That illustrates the fact that we 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 is even more so in modern life. Many of us we don't tend to, I don't know, we don't tend to look beyond next month, let alone generation upon generation. Well, yeah, I I, I get that. You know, I I I do get that. It's um, and you know when I look at um, some petroglyphs. And one that is pretty ubiquitous, not only here in the Southwest, in, in Utah and the Colorado Plateau region, is the spiral. Right? We see that spiral in many places. And the way I see that is in, in two ways. One is that it is collectively as a people. We, we live in one place and we migrate. I mean, migration is part of a human experience. You know, native peoples, non-native peoples from 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 Europe migrated to the Americas. People have been migrating in Africa. Right, migration is part of the human experience. But that spiral is, to me, it represents people that have lived in some place and moved to another, and moved on, looking for those greener pastures, or maybe looking for water, or or maybe escaping conflict, but moving and moving, moving and looking for their center, their grounded truth. And as, as, as they move through that spiral, 
they eventually get to the center, and, and, and when they land there, they say, this is the right place. This is where we will be. And collectively, but individually, so I think as you're saying about, well, the next day, the next month, I think, um, you know, I, I have um, a lot of maybe even a little envy of those sometimes young people, they're 10-year-olds, and they're saying, I'm going to be an astronaut. You know, or I'm going to be uh, a, a doctor, uh, noble professions, right? And and they become that. And I think, boy, they got a straight line going right towards that, and they've uh, and they achieve that. But for many of us, I think we go through a spiral. That you know, we're ten year olds with this vision, and but it isn't quite clear. And maybe as we get become adults, we live in this town, we move to that city. Maybe the next month we take another job, and we're maybe we have different professions, but we go through that spiral of life, and then finally maybe maybe we are, maybe we are educators or maybe we are, are engineers, and but we go through that spiral of life, and maybe we we think, you know, I've always wanted to build things, and and being a carpenter is something I love to do, and maybe to go through that spiral, and land in that center, and that is our truth. And and say I'm a carpenter, I'm a builder, and this is my truth, and this is this is where I feel most centered. So that idea of moving and and the, that petroglyph that I see in many places—that's what it always reminds me of. So whether we live in the same place for 600 generations, or we move, or we have all peoples, and again that human experience, we're going to go through that spiral until we find our truth. You just joined us. We're talking with Jimmy Notes. He is a Zuni tribal member. He's a scientist, a writer, a farmer. Uh, he's CEO of the Colorado Plateau Foundation, chair of the board of trustees of the Grand Canyon Trust, and uh, we're b- very pleased to have him for the hour. We'll take a brief break and uh, be back with much more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, we're very pleased to have with us for the hour Jimmy Notes. He's a Zuni tribal member, scientist, writer, traditional farmer, CEO of the Colorado Plateau Foundation, chair of the board of trustees of the Grand Canyon Trust. And uh, we, we have him uh, for the hour. Uh, Jimmy Note, um, I noticed uh, you, you gave an interview to uh, Science Moab. I want to give them uh, credit. Very interesting topic. We've, we've kind of uh, flirted with this. I want to get into this uh, in full now. Uh, different ways of seeing the world, right? You're you're uh, you've been trained as a scientist, so you definitely you know come at the world from or can come at the world from that perspective. Also, from your tradition, there's indigenous knowledge. Um, so, I want to have you maybe talk a little bit about that. Multiple ways of understanding uh, the world. In this interview, I was uh, fascinated to note you say uh, your great grandparents passed away when you were 17. So you you had them until you were 17. And you go on to say being raised by someone who was alive in the 1800s was pretty special. Um, so I wonder if you talk about this, the, the, these two different worldviews. Yeah, Tom. Uh, yeah, I, again, I'm blessed in so many ways. But you know, my, my great-grandparents, <clears throat> excuse me, when I passed when I was 17, and when I think back, they, they, were, they lived quite a long life, and, and they... It's been a substantial portion of their life living in their 1800s. And my goodness, I lived and was raised in part by people that lived in the 1800s. 
and not to romanticize this, but you know they they um, they only spoke Zuni. Uh, they also had never read you know, books um, or any, anything with text really, and in, in, in some ways, I think you know maybe they were they were not encumbered with the kind of different information that's coming to me all the time, even even in the 1970s when they passed away. But they they were they were deep Zuni, and um, I, I remember my great grandfather in the early mornings every day that um, he would be outside praying as the sun was coming up. And and when I was young, I, I would watch that, and and I didn't fully appreciate it then, but I, I began to appreciate it as I got older. But it, it was about him helping to maintain a cosmological process. And by that, I mean that the sun could use a little help every day. We may think... I don't know about that, right? Because I mean, when I mentioned like being encumbered by, by all the books and what we've learned, I mean, I'm challenged because I was raised watching him do that, um, and let me let me put frame it this way too: It's like if you ever been maybe camping, and you weren't quite well prepared enough for that camp. And at four or five o'clock in the morning, you're shivering in in your too thin of a sleeping bag or or bedroll, and and in in your in your tent, maybe you were you were praying for that sun to come up to get warmed. And I think in a way that was like my my great grandfather is saying, like, you know, it would, if it wasn't for the sun coming up, um, there wouldn't be there wouldn't be life as we know it. And in his in his small gesture, that he was helping to nudge the sun along every day, and that that was deeply meaningful to me, and and so the, the complications later was that I would read books that tell me, well, we live in, on the planet Earth. There's a solar system, and there are galaxies, and there's gravitational pulls, and all these other things. So it was, it was always a um, a, a kind of point of being conflicted. It's like, which is it? Well, I think it's both. You know, one is just appreciating uh, the cosmological processes. You know, that that winter eventually comes becomes spring. But why can't we help it along? Why can't we, in a very small way, be thinking positive things? And collectively, if we have thousands or maybe millions of people thinking collectively about, you know, thank goodness the sun's coming up, or let's let's think good thoughts for rain. I mean, we in Utah, in the, this in the Four Corners region, you know, we live in a place where where we almost never say, "I hope it doesn't rain." Right? You know, we will always take the rain. Um, and so it's it's. Um, it's a place where I think many people, whether you're a native or not, not um, we began to understand and appreciate the the value and 
and why thinking about cosmological processes are so important. So I, w- I was fortunate. I was fortunate to be raised by my great-grandparents and my great-grandmother. Oh, my goodness. She passed on to me so many other valuable lessons, including, for example, taking care of seeds. And, you know, many cultures and societies take care of seeds, right? But she she imparted to me the idea that everything comes from a seed, whether it's a corn plant, um, a whale, a, a giant tree, or us as human beings, that we all come from seeds, and so do ideas. And that is another lesson that has been a part of me. So I, I'm living a life like um, uh, living a gladiator style where one mm-hmm. foot is on a horse of, of tradition and old ways of knowing, and the other foot on this horse of modernity, and I'm riding these two horses at the same time. And it's, it's not easy, hmm. and particularly because now today we, we live in a world where we, we have to try to make sense. People always want to make sense of something or try to rationalize something. And I think well, we, have, we live in a world with different knowledges, plural. Right? Uh, I'm trained as a scientist in university, and, and grown up with with this you know, being a part of, with with ideas of tradition and, and seeing the world as cosmological processes. So we have different knowledges, and I think our challenge then is not necessarily trying to always bring them together, but how we learn across knowledge systems. Uh, you gave an example uh, in this interview uh, that I found fascinating. They ask you, can you give an example of different knowledge systems? And you gave an example when you were a museum director there in, uh, in Zuni about uh, map art, a different idea of mapping. Um, you could tell yeah. us about that. Sure, sure. Um, you know, in that work, uh, in one part of my career, I was a soils conservationist, and I was a range conservationist also, and eventually I was a natural resource manager. I was the director of a department of natural resources. And I think at one point we had about 83 people on staff. We had um, you know, agriculturalists, we had fish and wildlife people, we had uh, uh, geographic information system people, we had, you know, the, the, the usual um, uh, manifest of, 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 of conservation scientists and, you know, land, land managers, basically. And we, we created maps, you know, we were, we were always using maps, right? And, and maps have, are also part of everybody's lives in one way or another, whether it's we, we use them for uh, getting to places, and how we think about where we're going to go, and maybe our aspirations of where we're going to go for a vacation or whatever it may be. But we, we created maps. And I remember one time working with our staff, and I, we printed a, a, a map of a region where, where my house was at, my family's house, and there were fields around it. And I, and I, I printed it, and I took it home, and I was showing it to my mother. And I said, oh, so check this out. I said, here's a map of the area where we live. And, and she looked at it, and she said, I, what, what's going on here? I don't get it. And I said, well, um, you have to think about looking straight down, 
like from above and looking down on it. And I was trying to give her a sense of scale and where things were at. And she said, I still don't get it. And I said, you, you have to look straight down. Like imagine you're, you're like a bird looking down. And she said, but I'm not a bird. And, and I had this, this moment, you know, this epiphany is like, you know, exactly right. You are not a bird. You're, you're a human with a different perspective than a bird. And, and I thought, well, how can I rethink this idea about maps that would be more accessible? And while those, I don't want to disparage the, the kinds of maps, the GIS maps that we, we produced in, in, uh, land management, because those are incredibly useful. But I thought accessible, that, that just that idea of making knowledge accessible and, and a knowledge of place more accessible, so not without creating gatekeepers through the computerized system. So people, only the people that knew the keystrokes would produce certain maps and, and, and have the, the data related to that kind of place in those systems. Again, those are important and powerful but I wanted to start thinking about new kinds of maps. So in another time in my career, I, I was a, a museum director here in Zuni, actually. And the idea came to me, well, why can't we make new kinds of maps? So I, I gathered some people who were in the community, educators, some religious leaders, um, other people of, of standing in the community, and uh, bought them you know, pizza and some soft drinks every, every month, and we met for lunch, and uh, we talked about creating some maps. And at the front of that was what not to map, um, because, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to divulge, we don't have to uh, know everything. Uh, and that, that's another story, but what was not to map? And then the group said, well, we wanted to create maps that future generations can use as a touchstone for identity, but also for maintaining language, and to understand places that future generations could represent and perhaps protect in the future. And so we, we decided on what kinds of maps we wanted to make, and then the next thing was like, well, let's bring in some artists. So we brought Zuni artists into the conversation, and we said, you know, we, we, we have these vignettes again, you know, like how people think about places. We're going to take you to these places. We're going to tell you everything we know about these places. And these artists did. We, we went to some places, and, and they were, artists were taking notes and making sketches and saying, aha, well, I didn't know that about this place. And then they, we turned them loose and said, make the maps. And the way they made them was like if they were up on a hill um, looking across a place and, and they made maps that were, again, they were literally like little vignettes, little windows of perspectives and ideas about certain places. And this became then an idea of map art. And, and those were a hit. We made posters of those. Uh, we, we gave the posters... Uh, free to every household in Zuni. Um, and we started making other maps. So, for example, the Grand Canyon. And they're, and they're beautiful. Um, and maybe for your listeners, um, uh, references, if you look up a video 
It's a short film, nine-minute film. It's called Counter Mapping. So if you maybe look for Counter Mapping Jim Enote, you'll see a, a nine-minute film about about creating this kind of map art as a different kind of mapping. But it was it was such a, a unique experience that we we eventually made 32 of these maps. Now they were they were made in acrylic on canvas, oil on canvas. There were watercolors, uh, beautiful large pieces, wow. and uh, we exhibited those. And they actually traveled um, in through Los Angeles galleries, uh, museums, to um, American Museum of Natural History in New York City. They they traveled, and uh, they were. Uh, quite evocative, you know. Some people would see them, non-Zunis would would see them and say they're beautiful, but I don't understand what's going on. And I would tell them that they were actually made for the Zuni people, but it is but it is an opportunity for you to encounter a different way of knowing and seeing the world. Well, um, I, I found this uh, Global Oneness Project um, video on counter mapping. We'll have that on our website. Uh, a little later today. Um, so you've said that, you know, there's more than one worldview, more than one knowledge, right? The knowledge is they can coexist. Um, I wonder if you'd uh, apply that, these different knowledge systems, to, uh, you know, issues in public lands or natural resource policy. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Well, you know, when the Bears Ears... National Monument, just the the idea, the seed of Bears Ears National Monument uh, began in in 2013 on the on the San Juan River during a gathering of 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 many clever people. Um, one of the things that I had hoped and still have hope for. And actually, Tom, my two favorite words in the English language, one is hope and the other is clarity. But one of my hopes then was that there would be a institute or a center for traditional knowledge that would inform the management of Bears Ears National Monument. And that would bring together native traditional knowledge um, with science, good conservation science, and not necessarily blend them together. Because you know, I, Tom, I've, I've tried to bring uh, conservation science and just science together with native traditional knowledge, and. I brought them together uh, when I was a, a natural resource director, and what I found was when we brought together Zuni farmers and, and scientists from, I think it was Iowa State University, um, agricultural scientists, what I found was that we actually subjugated Native or Zuni traditional knowledge to an ethnoscience and we ended up then with ethnobotany. And, you know, again, I'm not going to disparage this different knowledge system, the science, because I'm a trained scientist also. I'm just saying that I found that we we eclipsed more or less the 
the traditional native traditional knowledge and 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 framed it through the lens of, of science so if we're not careful uh, that's what happens and so i think when you have these two knowledge systems there it's important to have a mediator you need to mediate knowledges and, and that and that's going to take a special skill so my hope is that not only at Bears Ears, but in other public lands, that whether it's it, it could be um, a, a family of, of of loggers in in Appalachia, or it could be um, uh, fishing guides in in Wyoming, or Utah, or other places, that their knowledge of sight fishing or or their knowledge of quail habitat in Appalachia in, in, in their forests, that we bring that kind of knowledge and native knowledge to the table, but we have a mediator amongst those knowledges. And I think that's going to be what's next. That's going to be the next generation of, of, of conservation and uh, public land management. It, it, it's challenged, but... Uh, uh, we're, we're we're all capable of different difficult things. I mean, I was just thinking the other day about uh, when the Wright brothers. What was what was the year of the first flight? Nineteen six. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> but it was very. It was early nineteen hundreds, right? But I mean, it was like went from went from that first flight to the moon in a very short amount of time, right? And so if if we put a pencil to it, if our our minds are in the right place. I think we're capable of doing some uh, some uh, incredible things if we put our heads together. Well, let's take another break. Come back with our last segment with Jimmy Note. Um, we're pleased to have him with us for the uh, for the hour. I want to talk about Bears Ears when we come back and uh, as much else as we can fit into the hour here. Uh, by the way, I looked it up, uh, Jimmy Note, uh, December seventeenth, nineteen o three, first Wright uh, Brothers um, well, uh, flight. You were you were very close. Um, <laughs> The, the, the magic of Google. Uh, we'll have uh, more following this. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We have with us for the hour Jimmy Note, a Zuni tribal member, CEO of the Colorado Plateau Foundation, chair of the board of trustees at Grand Canyon Trust. He's a scientist, writer, traditional farmer, and he's uh, with us uh, for another 10 minutes or so. Pleased to have him with us today. Um, so back in 2018, and uh, people can look this up, uh, you gave an interview, Jimmy Note, to uh, National Geographic. This was about uh, Bears Ears. Of course, uh, a lot preceded that, and a lot's happened since 2018 with Bears Ears. But um, I like this perspective in this interview, and wonder if you could um, talk a little bit about this. They, they ask you, for example, first of all, to share some of the history of your of your tribe, Zuni people. What if you could do that a little bit here? Oh, right. Well. Uh... A long, long time ago, and that's how we often describe this this time. A long time ago, it doesn't have to be so many years, but you know, a long, long time ago, when when it got drier and drier and drier, well, well, it was difficult, and difficult choices were made, and and people said we're going to have to leave, and and so the people left and went north. And it wasn't that far away, maybe maybe two months' journey, maybe less, up into what is now the Bears Ears area. 
and parts of southern southwest Colorado. And we would live there. It was, there was, it was cooler. There was some more water. And lived there for two or 3,000 years. And as it got cooler and wetter, we said, well, I think we can move back. And we would move back. But that time that we spent there, you know, it's a long time. You know, <laughs> one, two, 3,000 years, maybe more. But uh, our, our places are still there. You know, the, the dwellings are still there. Uh, there are certainly shrines. There are the, the petroglyphs. There's a lot of cultural resource and history there. And that place, the Bears Years region, is also, I think, a monument to the crucible of the foodways of North America, uh, of the agriculture of North America, to living, you know, the architecture, even, even home buildings, structures, like how do you live in a high arid climate? That experience is there. So there's, there's a lot of knowledge. While it's not, it's not dynamic and moving and, and we don't see people actually doing things, but if you look within and listen to people, um, talk about the place, uh, maybe the archaeologists, ethnographers, and anthropologists also, you'll see that the region is really an, another treasure of, of the American experience. And so we were there. And when, when I approach places there, I, I always say a greeting in Zuni to the people there because the structures that are there, uh, I mean, it's almost certain that people were buried there also. And so it, it is a, a monument to quite a, a time of living of testing, of, of exploring, of experimenting, of planting, of growing, and and there are so many lessons there that um, that we're bringing forward. But you know, so much of it hasn't been shared yet. Um, I, I I really do hope that the Bears Years region will be eventually, as I said, a crucible then, but even more so now, a crucible for now of part of the American experience. It is a monument for all of us to appreciate. You know, I, I, as I said before, when I go there, as I am here, that there's this feeling of that the people who live there, the blood that was in their veins is in my veins. We see the same ceramic pieces there that I see here. We see some of the same petroglyph images there that I see here. There's a very, very close tie, in, and, and it is a place that is very close to my heart and many others. So uh, obviously you're very aware of the, uh, the history here that the monument was created, then greatly reduced, then restored. Um, and uh, I guess now um, you know, various people coming together to decide um, about interpretation, about uh, how, you know, what visitors will encounter. What would you like to see happen? I would like to see one that that we are, that, the visitors would see that we are not only citizens of this great nation, but indigenous to it and part of its original fabric. And and the monument of Bears here says that we are of this place. And, well, I would also hope that people would understand that uh, it is precious to all of us, to all humanity, and and it should it should be 
vandalize. I mean, it's it just doesn't make sense to vandalize and pot and pot hunt and cause damage to that place. Um, I mean, to do so is is not only harmful for everyone. I mean, it, it, but it's also a slap in the face to Native peoples, um, to Zunis, Hopis, other peoples that have lived there in the past. I mean, I think that. You know, Native people, we've given so much to this nation, and relatively speaking, I think we've received so little in return. I mean, we, we should have at least that. I mean, it is home to some of our nation's earliest antiquities. Um, so this one, Bears Ears National Monument, was somewhat unique, and it was a coalition of uh, tribes came together, I think was the, the impetus for this, right? Um, what... What what has this meant for the Native American community? This this coalition. Well, you know, um, the, the fact is, you know, we, there's a reason why on this continent we're one we're not one tribe. I mean, there are five hundred something different tribal nations in in the U.S. alone. I mean, there's a diff, there's a reason why we're not speaking one language and we're not one tribe. We have differences. And so, so for different tribal nations to come together as a coalition is significant. And there may have been times when we were antagonistic, where we've looked sideways at each other, where we, we've had to build some trust around Bears Ears, and which is, again, significant. Uh, it also means that why can't other communities and peoples do the same? It, it is an example for collaboration and, and collaboration to me really my definition is co-laboring and co-elaborating around a common purpose and idea what um what, what are the biggest challenges facing colorado plateau right now right now i can tell you water i mean that just jumps right up in front water and i think i think most people in the plateau region utah colorado new mexico and arizona would agree water water is it's getting scarcer all the time and it's it's frightening and uh, something big is going to happen in the next in, within this next decade major things that's so what concerns me is water well tom with the time remaining you know mm-hmm. i'm thinking about uh, not to sound uh, alarmist but i i've been raised the idea of of that we live on a precipice and it's not to be frightened but that, that day we wake up, we make choices. And we, we, you know, whether we don't want to make the bad choice, we want to do good. And so I wrote a piece called Precipice and Purpose. And I oh. wonder if I could read that quickly. Yes, definitely. Well, okay. Let me get my Precipice and Purpose here. Well, it is Precipice and Purpose. We, we inherit metaphors from the swifts and swallows that congregate and build homes near the springs. So always be near water makes sense. And we learn that it is practical to give space to one another, like dispersed anthills across a valley. The immaculate lives of other beings will always offer us lessons and support. Generations before us struggled, but people stood and got into lines, chanted old words, conjured the beings around them and those above and below. Those acts are still part of a universal and dramatic plan, time-tested and appraised with terms set by nature and metaphor. All browned and sandblasted people like me 
know these metaphors as self-evident truths. These are our attunement and our knowledge. And we do not sit with our ideas entirely indoors. We expose them to the natural forces of the sun, rain, and wind. We are not paralyzed with indecision. We wake in the morning and decide which foot goes in front of the other and move. We are not seeking an escape route. On the contrary, we are more potent than ever. We are here to defend and grow our purpose, to make things work even with so little. So my stride is the ultimate measure as I plant seeds, nurture and cultivate, harvest and give thanks and then reflect. In my most difficult times, my great-grandparents told me this, all things come from a seed, corn, the tallest trees, birds, fish, humans, and our ideas come from seeds. All creatures breathe in and breathe out with an unseen and vital force. Those creatures live all around us. They are below us, above us, and in all the waters of the world. Many of those creatures have wings, fins, arms, and legs that help them move from one place to another. Like us, some creatures have eyes and ears to perceive things around them. Like us, those creatures respond when the sun rises and when winter becomes spring. And like us, those creatures have power beyond their physical bodies. If we think of them, that is their power speaking to us. The ground we stand on and the space above are the backbone of our sublime world, and it too has power. We respect the power, we've talked to it, and with collective ritual, we help to maintain a cosmological process. In great difficulty and worry, remember this truth, we are never alone. All the creatures of the universe are not much different than us. We are a family of beings. If we settle our nerves and enter the right frame of mind, we will conjure their powers and nothing can undo us. Our history will always play out and change, but will remain the same beautiful story. Our purpose will appear from neglected spaces, forgotten peoples, intervals of crisis and rapture, and in the pattern languages of our lives. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, but thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I appreciate that very much. Well, we've reached uh, the, the end of our, our time. That was timed out just uh, perfectly and a great place to uh, end uh, this uh, conversation. We've been talking with Jimmy Note, Zuni tribal member, scientist, writer, traditional farmer, CEO of the Colorado Plateau Foundation and chair of the Board of Trustees of the Grand Canyon Trust. Jimmy Note, thank you so much for, for taking the time to be with us. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. We'll go out, as we always do on a Thursday, with uh, Skywatcher. As many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here. On Tuesday night, November 15, NASA counted down to liftoff of Artemis 1, and a liquid hydrogen leak is detected. The red team sprung into action, torqued down the nuts, and stopped the leak. Then... GLS, go for core stage to internal power. The count continues. One minute. Shortly after liftoff, One minute. Mission Control Houston will take control of the rocket, and my colleague, Leah Cheshire, will take over commentary. T-minus 50 seconds and counting. We're going to launch. Coming up at T-minus 33 seconds, the GLS will hand off control to the ALS. This is the autonomous launch sequencer on board the rocket. It will take over command and control of the rocket. But the ALS will check, make sure there's no holds coming from the ground up until T-minus 2 GLS, go for ALS. And we are go for ALS. The Space Launch System 
is now counting down to lift off of Orion on its maiden voyage to the moon. Sound suppressor water now flowing 15. under the ML. And here we go. Ten, Hydrogen burnoff igniters initiate. Seven, six, five, four stage engines start. Three, two, one, boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis One. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. All four RS-25 engines on the core stage and two solid rocket boosters now propelling the vehicle at 128 miles per hour. Hearing good, con good control on the roll from teams in Mission Control Houston. All good calls so far. Now 30 seconds into the flight of Artemis 1. First milestone will be forward the vehicle to pass through max Q at about 1 minute and 9 seconds into launch. This is the greatest period of atmospheric force on the rocket. traveling 607 miles per hour. You're looking at 8.8 .8 million pounds of maximum thrust. Quiet here in the loops of mission control. Four core stage engines throttling down ahead of passing through max Q. traveling at 1,420 miles per hour. The four core stage engines are back at maximum thrust. The next major milestone will be for the solid rocket boosters to cut off and jettison at about two minutes and 11 seconds into the flight, so about 30 seconds from now. Standing by for solid rocket booster jettison and shortly thereafter, confirmation that the solid rocket boosters have separated these 177 foot boosters. Now the core stage continues to power the flight of Orion, all four RS-25 engines firing, traveling over 3,400 miles per hour, 46 miles downrange. Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo. With staging about 90 minutes after launch, the rocket's upper stage successfully thrust the Orion capsule out of Earth orbit and on its trajectory to the moon. Orion will spend the next six days flying toward the moon. Next Monday, the 21st, after traveling through the void, Orion will close in on the moon and perform its lowest lunar pass, flying within about 60 miles of the lunar surface, engaging orbital mechanics, utilizing the moon's gravity to slingshot Orion back out. The service module will then perform a second burn at T plus 10, November 28th, and Orion will break the record set by Apollo 13 for a crew-rated vehicle's greatest distance from Earth, reaching nearly 300,000 miles from Earth, 40,000 miles from the moon, and looping back to Earth after 25 days and splash down at sea on December 11th. The spacecraft will also release 10 miniaturized science satellites called CubeSats, including one designed to map ice deposits on the moon's south pole where Artemis seeks to eventually land astronauts. The CubeSats are the work of Space Dynamics Laboratory at the Utah State University campus, known for its work on spacecraft imaging and other space engineering accomplishments. Stay tuned for more in space and the continuing saga of Artemis One as we look up, look around, and get just a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T. On UPR, Utah Public Radio, with translator stations statewide and streaming live at upr.org.